Josh Bowman, Vice President of the Ciceronian Society, and you're listening to the So We're a Podcast. Uh, and we, this is part two of our interview with Nate Roberts, uh, the founder of the Michigan Academy of Folk Music. In part one, we talked a lot about what he's doing and the pedagogy and style and how it relates to classical education and homeschooling. Um, we had a lot of fun with that conversation. So please, if you have not listened to that, go back there because we're going to refer back to it. This, these are meant to be uh, to, to continue one to the other. Um, <clears throat> now, a primary interest of the Ciceronian Society is the idea of intellectual discipleship in the church. That's a big uh, part of what we're hoping to do in the future, and we're looking for resources to do that. And spiritual formation in word and sacrament remains the central mission of the church. But many Christians long to go deeper in different ways. They want a church that is not miles wide and inches deep, but a church that has deep roots that can grow uh, much larger branches, just like using the metaphor that Nate used in part one. And so there's a need to think of formation more holistically and more comprehensively. Um, Nate and I had a great conversation about this before, uh, before when we uh, talked about doing this podcast, but we really only scratched the surface. And if there's one thing that draws out strong feelings in the church world, I know this as a, I'm a director of operations at a church right now, part-time, but it, it doesn't matter what denomination you are and honestly what position you're in. Uh, the role, style, and nature of church music always brings out everyone's opinions. And it's more than just, you know, it, 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 I think it's, it's oversimplified to say it's just traditional versus contemporary. That's really not what's going on. It, sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not. Um, and, and also, it's not just young versus old. That traditional versus contemporary notion that people get, the simplistic version, um, is, doesn't really map according to generational divides as much as people think it does. But the who, what, why, how, and when of church music provokes a number of debates and arguments. And I think this is in part because we sense that there's something at stake here. It's not just about the pleasure that a particular style of music gives us. There's something more profound going on in terms of formation, um, because the music we choose, not just the lyrics, and I think this is going to be the part that I'm, I'm most interested for you to explain, um, the music we choose has theological and spiritual implications. Um, and I actually want to, I thought of this this morning, I, uh, C.S. Lewis seems to have recognized um, the spiritual implications of this in screw tape letters. So depending on what copy you have, I'm in chapter 22. Um, and for those of you unfamiliar, the screw, tape, the screw tape letters is a letter from a senior demon to a younger demon. The younger demon is still learning how to be a, uh, can I say good demon? Yeah, an adequate, <laughs> a, a fit demon for his work. <laughs> Effective demon. Okay, so he says at one point in this letter, he says, "Music." This is the this is screw tape. Um, right, writing music and silence. How I detest them both. How thankful we should be that ever since our father, meaning the devil, entered hell, though longer ago than humans reckoning in light years could express, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces. In other words, hell has always been, has never had silence, has never had music. But all has been occupied by noise, capital N, noise. Noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and virile. Noise, which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples, and impossible desires. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. 
we have already made great strides in this direction as regards the earth. (laughs) The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. But I admit we are not yet loud enough for anything like it. Research is in progress. Meanwhile, you, disgusting little, and then what's funny, it says here, the the manuscript breaks off and is resumed in a different hand because uh, the demon has turned into a centipede. I I don't really know what the metaphor is there, but I, I, I think... I, I want you to respond to that, which I think is such an interesting way to put it. But also, let's get started on what is, in what sense is music, um, not separate from lyrics, in a way, formative in the context of worship in the Christian life? That's a huge question, but go for it. I love it. Yeah, thanks for the question, first of all, because I have had this conversation many times with people where uh, it turns out what they're really speaking about is whether or not the worship songs are comparable to the old great hymns in terms of their theological accuracy or their poetic, uh, the the beauty of the poetry, which is actually a different question. So we're talking about the music itself, separate from what the lyrics have to say. Uh, I mean, I would say, first of all, yes, that's a question we should be asking as a conversation we should be having. Um, I think, what is music doing when we're singing it? What is music doing when it's washing over us? Well, it should be tuning us to the music of the spheres. It should be forming us. We have a tendency, I think, to think of music along consumeristic lines. And this has a lot of different implications, but one would be, I like a certain type of music and therefore that's the type of music I should choose. So you, you addressed the traditional versus modern, the old congregation versus the young congregation. Well, we like rock and roll. We like drums. You like organs. There's a certain aesthetic relativism that's inherent to that question. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, I don't believe as Christians, we can really accept that premise Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is in the eye of the creator. Now, I would probably not want to be the one that would say, well, no, I believe in objective aesthetics. I believe in an objective beauty, capital B, beauty. So let me tell you what it is. (laughs) Let me tell you what it looks like. There are a lot of different criteria by which we might look at what music is objectively beautiful. But I think the first thing that we have to say, just like we would hold up any theological claim, you say, well, I'm going to hold this out and say, this sounds pretty and it looks nice, but how do I judge whether or not this is true? Well, I have to hold it up to God's word, inerrant, you know, scripture. Well, we don't have passages in scripture that say the music must be played on organ or, you know, to the choir master with, you know, with notes to the, to the master of strings, make sure this is fortissimo or something like that. We don't have those details, but what we do know is that, you know, Romans one, God has revealed himself in nature. And so we are without excuse, you know, we're without excuse for no, uh, <laughs> you know, Romans one nineteen. you can read it yourself. I'm going to butcher it or the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, these things we know are beautiful. We know are, gl- are glorious because our creator made them. So when we think about what is beautiful, I think the first thing we should say is, well, let's come up with some standards by which we can hold this against other things that are beautiful. So for example, clarity, you know, symmetry, proportion, uh, you know, what, are, how would we judge any piece of art? And then if it seems to be fitting, what, how do we use it in worship? And then how can we sit underneath it humbly expecting it to form us rather than sit on top, you know, sit above it from a prideful perspective of I've chosen this because I like it. So that would be maybe my first, my first stab at that question. I'm I'm wondering what you meant by 
this is one of the first things you said. What do you mean by the music of the spheres? Mm. That's actually, <laughs> so I know um, that I, I, if, I under, if I understand right, that's actually an important concept for C.S. Lewis because it's a very medieval. It's, yeah. Uh, to go back to Lewis, uh, the music of the spheres. And actually, is it my, I think it's Michael Ward who sees that. Yes. That sphere thing as, as a way of. Narnia, of right? Yeah, Planet yeah. Narnia, the way yes. it describes it. And I don't want to get into that book partic- in, in, in particular, but what, what do you mean by that? You say the music well, of the spheres. Yeah, and this is one of those questions that I ideally I'd like to phone a friend here because there are so many people who could articulate this much more effectively than I could. But I think one thing that just is worth at least pitching is what we think of now as music, the things that the the subjects that we put, would put under the discipline of music are just scratching the very beginning of the surface of what medieval intellectual thought or classical education in the quadrivium, what was considered music. Um, and so Augustine writes on this, Boethius de Musica has some really interesting thoughts on this type of thing. But the music of the spheres is essentially... Uh, the inherent vibrations of the cosmos that our creator made. And it's in cooperating with them, in apprehending them, in sitting underneath them, in trying to wrestle with the way that sound number in time and sound vibrations and compression waves are flying invisibly through the sky, uh, that something is meant by that. And it has implications for how we live and it has implications for the way that we should do music as well. So I, I probably wouldn't want to try to articulate anything more specific than that, just because I will butcher it, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, when I say the music of the spheres, I mean that there is music in the celestial bodies, the heavenly bodies, and there's music in the cosmos. And we hear some of it, but much of it, there's a great quote. I wish I could, I wish I could remember who said it. It may be Chesterton. I'm sure one of your galaxy brain intellectual listeners will be able to help me out here, but something about how we're constantly hearing music and were the, were the music, was the music, were the music of the spheres, excuse me, to be silent for even a second, we would instantly implode or going crazy, go crazy or lose our minds because in the same way that we're sitting here feeling fairly balanced, you and I sitting on chairs and couches while we spin around in the, you know, spin a lot around the cosmos at mock something crazy on this earth that God has flung into being. Uh, the same thing is true. And it feels pretty normal to us because of the way God designed our inner ear to make us feel balanced and the receptors on the bottom of our feet and our eyes that make us feel as though we're balanced and on firm ground, even though we're flinging through the cosmos. The same thing is true of what we consider silence I mean, that's another interesting connection to the screw tape letters. When we feel as though silence is happening, what we're actually hearing is just lack of additions to the music of the spheres. There's nothing added to it. It's the purity of the music of the spheres, the vibration of the cosmos, the song of the stars, someone could say. That's what we're hearing when we hear silence. That's, that's such a, it, it brings to mind so many things. First of all, it's just, you think of here in 2023, it's it's controversial to even suggest that there is a cosmos. Right. I think there's so much that it, it, the the alternative is a chaos, right? It's kind of right. almost like you wonder, and we, well, I'm going to come back to this question because we're going to talk about is there something called musical, uh, you know, uh, orthodoxy and musical heresy, but I didn't think about this before. Is there something, is there musical nihilism? We'll, hmm. we'll come back to that because I, I want to mention just two things that that kind of confirm or at least parallel what you're saying 
both C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, major subjects and topics at every Ciceronian Society conference, both think of the creation of the universe in terms of music. So C.S. Lewis, the most the simplest one to to that I can quote and remember, um, is where Aslan is creating uh, Narnia by singing it into existence. So I, that was such a uh, mo- I, I, when I read that even as a kid, just being oh yeah, that's that's how we did it. Um, and while the Bible doesn't use that word, it's it's immediately recognizable and 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 relatable. I mean, I, I think that there, even if it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it doesn't and, they, and, and God spoke and this, it doesn't say He sang it. Um, but to me, that is that, that's immediately recognizable that there is some kind of cosmic order that includes music. Um, that and and that we we can rebel against it, and we, we or we we can be attuned to it, literally attuned to it. Now. The the much more the much the much deeper illustration of exactly what you're saying, and I didn't think of this till this moment, but the Silmarillion, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Tolkien and Lewis had such a beautiful sort of synergy between their creation narratives, the yes. one you mentioned, and, and you almost wonder if well they planned the it together. But I don't think Lewis ever. As a matter of mm-hmm. fact, I know because right, the Silmarillion was published after uh, Tolkien died. I wonder if Lewis ever read. Uh, parts of it, right? They yeah. shared things with each other. But remember, for those of you who don't know, in the in the early part of the Silmarillion, I can't remember what it's called. Um, no, Nate doesn't know either. Uh, it's it, the uh, uh, Eru Iluvatar sings mm-hmm. into existence the earth, and also the Ainur, these these kind of divine beings, demigod type figures. They are singing into existence Middle Earth, and they're singing together. And the way the Satan figure. Melkor. Uh, yeah, Melkor uh, comes in as he he sing he he sings a new tune. Discord. Discord. Yeah. He brings in um, uh, like angst and and some some of the Ainur follow him and they become you know Balrogs and others. I think mm-hmm. uh, I could I could you know for those of you who are much more I I love Tolkien but I, I'm not I can't I'm not a lore master uh, <laughs> so uh, but I, I. I'm just thinking about how there there is in in our stories and I think that's actually. a a much more effective way to say it, say what we're trying to say then. I mean, I think in some ways, I, Nate and I are going to try and bring to to light what Tolkien and Lewis said better mm-hmm. in their stories. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I want, I want to, that both that formative, moving from that formative question to this question of musical orthodoxy, heresy, and nihilism. Right. I yeah. love it. Yeah. yeah, I love it. I and I think I think that was a, a perfect setup, honestly, to frame the conversation. Is that the Silmarillion creation? Because I do think you know. I mean, if if we can say that there is a certain reality wherein God has a created harmony, whether or not we are fit to identify or distinguish between what is consonant or dissonant with God's created cosmos is another question, possibly. But just to even start there to say, no, there is something consonant. There is something which has harmonic integrity, and then there is chaos. There is order, which is consistent with and and sort of working in harmony with what God has created. And then it's possible to create discord, which would be disharmonious, dissonant, unconsonant with the created order. Um, I think that has to be our first step. And you mentioned the idea of this, this isn't a conversation most people have. I would, I would kind of want to say, yeah, that's probably why the church is struggling so much to even know where to begin on this conversation, because all we have then to rest the conversation on is aesthetic relativism. You know, the, the young people prefer drums and the older people prefer organs. 
or to just say, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And on the basis of your cultural expression, you can choose what's best. And I think there is a reality where that there should be room for that to an extent. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to, to transition into the musical orthodoxy thing, uh, whether or not we can say what specifically is orthodox, whether or not we have some sort of image that we can hold up to compare, is this orthodox or is this heretical? I think the first question we have, the first sort of at least pitch we should make is, I would say, yes, it's clear there is. If there's beauty and there's that which is not beautiful, if there's chaos and order, if there's harmony and dissonance, then clear, clearly something we might do in worship would not be consonant with God's created order and the intentions when he crafted the music of the spheres and he placed us into this cosmos to be co-creators. There are things we can create which are ordered according to God's design, and there are things which we can create which are disordered and disharmonious and discordant. And so that would be, I think, the first step. Now, from there, maybe the next question is, to what extent can we start to try to make those judgments? Um, and before, I mean, before I would even say, you know, well, so is Bach orthodox and Hillsong heretical? You know, is that kind of the conversation? Before we get there, I think I would want to say, when having this conversation, I think we have to take a teleological perspective on it. What for the sake of, let's just say for the sake of the conversation as a starting point, we're talking about music in worship, music in on Sundays as part of a congregational expression of worship. What should we be singing? Well, I think the first question we have to say is, well, if music is for a certain thing, then it will be effective if it's a fit vessel for that expression. In other words, there are certain styles of music that are excellent for dancing that may not also be excellent for a funeral. There are certain styles of music that I think, you know, I mean, in this, some of this might be cultural. There's a certain extent to which certain cultures, an interesting thing to note is, for example, you know, we hear minor keys and people in the Western world, many people think, oh, sad, or we hear major keys and we think, oh, happy. Well, the Indian music culture, Indian, Indian musicians don't, have that sense. They don't even have those modes generally, or at least traditionally, and yet they have rhythmic sequences, tala, uh, that they feel in that way. This is a rhythmic sequence that is appropriate for mourning. This is a rhythmic sequence that is appropriate for celebration. So there is a sense in which we have to make a little bit of space that certain cultural expressions are going to happen. I mean, I think that's inherent in Christ saying, go and make disciples of all the nations and the nations will come and there will be a diversity, you know, in, in the kingdom, all, all the nations will bow to King Jesus, but all the nations are going to look, dress, sing, possibly slightly differently. Having said that, I do think within our cultural expression, there's a, a sense in which we have to say, yeah, whether you like it or not, and whether or not this comes from an objective musical stance, there is a reality where I don't think the Rolling Stones should be played at the Eucharist. I just, I don't think that's appropriate. And so there's a reality where um, we start somewhere like that, and then maybe we back up, and I could maybe get into what some of those things might be, but unless you have any. I don't disagree with you on the Rolling Stone thing. I'm just trying to think of a song where I could find a way, you know, 
Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> find the exception to right. prove the rule. I mean, I feel like the song "You Can't Always Get What You Want" might have. Uh, Let's you know, try it a, out. You know, a, a, a theologic. It could be a sermon illustration. There you go. You can't always get what you, you want. You got it, Bob Dylan. You got to serve somebody. That's right. You know, <laughs> we have there one are of a couple our, of those. We, we've actually had papers presented on Bob Dylan at, at our conference, and one of our board members. I'm not going to say he worships uh, Bob Dylan. Mm. Um, I won't mention him by name, um, but he is. He was. <laughs> Why having, not, Josh? No, it, it's not. It, it's not. I do not worship Bob Dylan. It's not me. Um, but uh, <laughs> no. Um, uh, what was I going to say there? I, I this is one of the things. One of the, the, the two of the biggest themes that we focus on at Ciceronian are tradition and place. You've already kind of hit on this a little bit about you know there is a that there, there, there's not necessarily if if we're going to say orthodoxy and heresy. We're not necessarily removing it from the context, which we talked about in the last um, podcast, about uh, that when you learn, you learn in context. In a sense, you also learn in certain places. When you encounter music, you encounter it in terms of tradition and places. Now, one of the things I said in the previous podcast was a lot of what you're doing, whether you know it or not, is very Aristotelian, in the sense that you encounter the universal truths, and um, whether we'd say that's orthodoxy or, or not, is... Um, through particulars. And, and one of the ways that we emphasize this, this theme of place is that the particular and the local, these are good things, that it's not the big, the global, and the universal that we should always focus on all the time, but that the particular and the local, they, they are important. So how do you, in addition to reconciling, I guess, how do you reconcile that, that, that need to attend to different tradition and place according to what, what, what you're trying to teach here. Because that, that, that's where the, the relativism can come in, right? Where you're saying, well, you're, you teach us American folk music here at, here at Michigan Academy of Folk Music. Are you suggesting that this is orthodox in Australia or in China or in Russia or wherever it happens to be? Um, you know, I especially think we, we have several uh, folks in the uh, wonderful brothers and sisters in the orthodox community who are listening right now. Uh, I, 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 it'd be <laughs> folk music in their context. You need banjos. Yeah. You need, you need, you, you, you need. heretics. Where are your banjos? <laughs> um, uh, he, he doesn't, he doesn't mean it. He's smiling as he says that. Just want you all to know. This um, is why we should have added video, Josh. That's right. That's right. That's, <laughs> you can't see the sarcasm on my face, um, which is actually permanently there. Uh, so <laughs> I, I reconcile for us tradition and place. With yes. this, with this notion of musical her- heresy orthodoxy. Okay, well let me let me try to come at this from the bottom and work my way up. So from the bottom, I think one thing. So the folk, one of the things that, and this kind of goes back to our previous conversation about Michigan Academy of Folk Music, but you know, you mentioned folk music. I think one thing that I've had people ask me is, you know, I don't understand you. You know, you love Bach and you love Palestrina and you love all of these great composers, and yet you're teaching old Joe Clark on the banjo to your students. I think, so people have a tendency, and this touches on the worship conversation as well, to create a false dichotomy that links good and bad, or let's say orthodox and heretical, to complex and simple. And that's a really, it's extremely dangerous for one, um, so I think maybe a, f- a food metaphor because I missed my breakfast this morning would be apt. So it's possible to have a simple and wholesome food, let's say a ripe tomato. It's possible to have a simple 
and unwholesome food, let's say a Jolly Rancher (laughs) or any kind of a Laffy Taffy, it's also possible to have an extremely complex and wholesome food, the finest French cuisine, the $10,000 a meal, you know, Michelin five-star restaurant that you're on the waiting list for, you know, seven years to get into. And of course, it's also possible to have a complex and unwholesome meal, such as I might make if I tried to make dinner for my family and just started adding turmeric and cayenne pepper to see if it'll fix the mess of, you know, (laughs) mushy ingredients. So music, the same thing is true of music. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. I'm not being facetious here, is one of the greatest masterpieces. It's perfect. There's nothing about it that I could change one note and would make it better. Having said that, I do think it's fair to say Bach's St. Matthew Passion, you know, or let's say Handel's Messiah, maybe, you know, think pieces that everyone might be familiar with, is equally wholesome and of a greater quality and of a greater expression of, it's, it's more ambitious. And so I probably wouldn't hold up box St. Matthew Passion and create an equivalency between that and Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, but neither of them are, you know, plagued by flaws in the sense that, I, that the Jolly Rancher or my home cooking would be. So then I think when we talk about, you know, to kind of, so I'm getting at, getting at your uh, aesthetic relativism thing, we have to have some sort of vocabulary for and aptitude for looking at any, let's, let's call it artistic. I, wouldn't, I don't really like the term artistic expression in this context, but, but let's call it that for the, for the sake of it. Francis Schaeffer has some good things to say about this. There's a lot of people who've tried to write on this aesthetics, um, you know, that can be really useful and, and ex- expressed at a pretty lay person level. But I think if we can say that a certain culture's expression of wholesome simplicity are valid, while a certain culture's expression of unwholesome simplicity or complexity are not appropriate, then that gives us the ability to say, okay, well then what is it that makes it wholesome or unwholesome? What do these rhythms express for a culture? What does a reggaeton beat express? What does a hip-hop beat express? That's not to say that hip-hop is wholesome or unwholesome or that the feel or pulse of a beat is wholesome or unwholesome. But again, it's a teleological question. What is this function? In what way does this function? I would say many of the great American fiddle tunes are excellently wholesome for dance. They're excellently excellently wholesome for family singing. Uh, I would not think they would be appropriate for, again, a funeral or a baptism or a marriage or certainly not the Eucharist. So maybe that's a step one to the conversation. Yeah, Um, you you can play you can play uh, American folk music at my funeral. I don't know. I don't know if you'll be there. I will. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure you all live. I plan to. You can't tell because this is an audio uh, uh, recording, but uh, he's skinnier than me and probably he's had more of that wholesome food. Mm. I haven't eaten his cooking. (laughs) Um, but, uh, like for example, there's a bakery right next door to this place. And I, I, I thought about going there. You can almost smell it. I can almost smell Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, lead me not into temptation. Um, I want to move to, so in, in the previous podcast, we, we got practical about music education, uh, for early, for, uh, you know, early childhood music education and for classical schools and for homeschooling families. Um, but you know, we are increasingly a church-facing organization, um, and so 
let's pretend you're a music minister at a church with a significant number of talented musicians and time to practice, which, by the way, isn't unrealistic. Um, but, you know, and so the question is, what do you do? Or if you don't have that. Now, I want to read, because I thought of this this morning, there's an essay in C.S. Lewis's Christian Reflections called On Church Music. Now, C.S. Lewis, to my knowledge, was not musically talented. He, he, he was a poet, um, but uh, I, I love C.S. Lewis, but his poetry is, is wanting. Uh, it's it's better than it mine. anyway. Yeah. yeah, it's better than mine, uh, which is not saying anything. But um, he says this in that essay. He says, I assume from the outset, beginning the essay, that nothing should be done or sung in, or said in church which does not aim directly or indirectly either at glorifying God or edifying the people or both. A good service may, of course, have a cultural value as well, but that is not what it exists for. Just as in an unfamiliar landscape, a church may help me to find the points of the compass, but was not built for that purpose. So I want to start with that quote, but then he goes on later in the essay, about a page or two later, he says, there are two musical situations in which I think we can be confident that a blessing rests because he's trying to figure out the practical implications of if we're going to, if it's going to be edifying and glorifying, how do we, how, what does this look like? Because there are two musical situations, which I think we can be confident that a blessing rests. One is where a priest or an organist himself, a man of trained and delicate taste, um, humbly and charitably sacrifices his own aesthetically right desires and gives the people humbler and coarser fare than he would wish in a belief, even as it may be the erroneous belief, that he can thus bring them to God. So that's one, one version where the, the very, very, we'll call them the fancy musician, right, um, says, you know what? It's not all about me. Um, I'm going to sacrifice a little bit of this so that it can be edifying to the people and still glorifying to God. Because it's not that, you know, while Palestrina both incur- brings both of us closer to God, quite frankly, it may not work for uh, everyone. Now, the or, or does it? We'll come back to that. The other is where the stupid and unmusical layman, uh, C.S. Lewis is saying that, I'm not saying it, just want everybody to know, uh, humbly and patiently, and above all, silently listens to music, which he cannot or cannot fully appreciate in the belief that it somehow glorifies God. And if it does not edify him, this must be his own defect. Neither such a highbrow nor such a lowbrow can be far out of the way. To both, Church music will have been a means of grace, not the music they have liked, but the music they have disliked. They have both offered, sacrificed their taste in the fullest sense. I'm going to finish the quote there. I'd just like you to respond to that, and in, with that quote in mind, with everything we've said in mind, you have a pastor, big church, small church, um, and, and music is a, a part of what you do. How, how do you make this real? Yeah, well, there are, well, let's start with the quote yeah. before I... Uh, lose my train of thought here, which is likely to happen if I <laughs> if I try to circle back. Uh, I, I love C.S. Lewis, and I think I understand what he's getting at. But a couple pushbacks I might offer. One is the what was it? The stupid, the stupid, and the stupid clumsy lay yeah, person. Yeah. Let's add a few more adjectives <laughs> just to put. Let's put them in his mouth because he's with the Lord now. Right. He can handle it. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure that sitting silently, you know, he, he mentioned whether or not it edifies him. Well, am I the one to say whether or not something edifies me? So if I sit in a room silently and, you know, Beethoven's sixth symphony, let's say pastoral symphony washes over me and I get none of it and I'm kind of bored and I am wanting lunch. Did that edify me? 
I'm not sure. And am I the one who would say whether or not it edified me? Can music transform us and form us on, despite our participation or lack of participation and whether or not we like it? Is it possible for that to happen? I would want to say yes, I believe so. I mean, for one, no matter how fancy the fancy priest is, if he's listening to, again, Bach, St. Matthew, Passion, he's not going to understand all of it. He may say this edifies me, but he, there are certainly aspects in which the order of the composition itself, the cooperation with the created order within that piece transcends his ability to appreciate what's happening, whether or not he can participate or feels he can. Um, and then I think for on, on the, on the fancy priest side, again, I mean, it, I think it, simplicity is appropriate. So, so dumbing down to, to sit from above and say, no matter what you feel, we will sing a William Byrd mass as part of worship. And if you can't sing it, shame on you congregation. That's obviously inappropriate. I think there are two perspectives. One would be, again, there is a simplicity, which is wholesome. So to say, we can't have William Byrd, let's get the Rolling Stones would be, you know, a, a, a mistargeted arrow there. However, to say we can't have Palestrina, we can't participate, but I'm still going to offer you the opportunity to be formed by this, by sitting underneath it, by being washed with this beauty, which is transcendent and, and which clearly does something to edify you, whether or not you're able to, able to participate. I think those, those are distinctives. And I think there's a different place within the liturgy and within the worship service for both of those. So then to make it, bring it back to the practical, let's say I'm the fancy minister can I change it from? Do I have to be fancy? No, can I, I be you, anything else? I mean, you, you literally have, anything other than fancy. I, I well, now that you say you don't want to be, I kind of don't want to change the word. And I just right. kind of want to be a. Buddy. Can I make it no. a lowercase f? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, you can whatever you want to be. Fanciful. You, yeah, you, you have you have a longer beard fancy than I do. Free. You have a longer beard than I do, so you, you can make up your words. If you there want. you go. Okay, I'll claim the beard authority on that one. Uh, all right, so it, let's say I'm the the fancy minister, the, the minister of music, I think what I would probably try to do is not, not lose hope that I might, there might be a place and a context wherein I could expose the congregation to the highest artistic expressions of, that glorify God, while at the same time not leaving them in the lurch you'll participate or you won't. You're not part of the equation here. So I think a couple things that are, well, let's start there. Some creative ways. I mean, again, most music, instrumental music during the Eucharist that can prepare one's heart and form one's heart without participation during some sort of prelude, during a postlude. On other days other than Sunday, I've been mulling the idea of something like a uh, musical stations of the cross, you know, during Holy Week, something like that would be incredible. But I think, I think as far as the participation of the congregation goes, this is the more, this is the harder nut to crack. This is the harder one to solve. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is the fancy minister knows we are inheritors of an unbelievably rich inheritance of the, the glory of the history of the church we as in all of us. So whether, you know, my history is the history of the tabernacle as, you know, I am an heir of Christ and I'm an heir of Abraham all the way back to Adam in Christ. And so the glories that have been used in liturgy throughout the history of the church, whether it's Bach or Palestrina or Schutz or William Byrd or Thomas Tallis, or the list could go on all day. Those are things that we have access to that have the power to form us 
And we certainly can use them in hopes that they will wash over us and form us. But the question of whether or not our congregations can again sing Mass for Five Voices by William Byrd or any or even simple four-part hymns is another question. And I think the problem there is we see, we meaning, I don't know, I guess many people in the modern church who who can see that we have a dearth of uh, beauty. <laughs> beauty has, truth and goodness have been prioritized while beauty has been left behind a little bit. And we don't have beautiful cathedrals and we don't have beautiful liturgical paintings or sculptures, or we, you know, we've, we've lost the church calendar. I mean, many, I'm guessing many of your listeners are saying, what are you talking about? We haven't, but many people have. Okay. So let's solve this problem and let's do so by church programming. You know what I mean? This, we, I think many people have seen this is not an effective way to do anything. We're, oh, we're losing our children. 80% of 18-year-olds are becoming apostate. What should we do? Hire a youth group leader. You know, that's not going to work, unfortunately. We have to start earlier. We have to be more thorough. We have to be more committed to discipleship. Many people are talking about all over the country the idea that if we want to keep our children as members of the flock, if we want to keep the teenagers who go to public school from apostatizing, we're going to have to get serious about family worship and family discipleship and catechism and these things. The reality is that there is a musical discipleship, which we have also abandoned, which we almost don't know we've abandoned. So if we want access as inheritors to that glorious inheritance that we have, that we can claim, I mean, if there were a congregation that could on Sunday sing Bach chorales and Renaissance, beautiful Renaissance motets and liturgical settings and four-part hymns, they can do that. They have access to that, and it will edify them. The problem is we don't have an on-ramp to get there because we don't sing as families. So I would say, you asked if you have a, if you have a whole bunch of, uh, if you have a budget and a bunch of talented musicians, and where would you start? My first question would be, hey, gang, do you have children? Okay, you do? Go home and sing with them. Talk to you in 20 years. It's going to be a generational project. And I'm not saying that there aren't very beautiful and edifying ways that we can engage what resources we have now. And I'm also not saying that there may not be churches where the inheritance was lost six years ago, and we can reclaim it by a Wednesday night hymn sing. I think for many other traditions, though, we're going to have to reckon with the reality that we're not going to get back to that inheritance. We won't be edified by it. We won't be able to reap the benefits of what is rightfully ours as God's people without a turn of the ship that's going to take generations. And we're going to have to start by musically dis discipling our children. And so I think there are a number of ways we can do that. I might want to just shamelessly plug a couple projects I've got in the works on that front. But the first thing that I would want to say is, so those of you that are thinking, like you, so your listeners may or may not know, Josh is an excellent singer, trained vocalist. Um, that So he can easily bring that home to his children and and give them that gift especially if we're talking to homeschool parents or parents who are trying to educate their children, they know that the model they've received is not going to be beneficial or fruitful, but they don't have access to the vine themselves. They have to find some way to reconnect. I just want to emphasize, if you can take a posture of let your ceiling be your children's floor, no matter where you're starting, if you start by simply singing whatever folk songs you know at home on a regular basis, that will be better than what you probably received, and it will give your children a richer access to their inheritance. 
there are many ways that you can get them singing scripture, and there are things that aren't that hard. We've just forgotten. Many traditions have forgotten how to chant the Psalms. It can be easily remembered. And then you'll be able to give your children not only the access to how do we chant the Psalms, how do we sing, but also a childhood full of saturation with the Psalms written on their hearts. So uh, I could be more specific if you want, and and I think some some people may may say, well, so this really still leaves our poor fancy minister uh, without very many resources. But I, I have to say, I do think we're going to have to get comfortable with the idea that there isn't probably going to be, you know, a three-step plan to get us from Hillsong to Palestrina or whatever the on-ramp is that we're trying to achieve. I think we're going to have to say, we've actually been headed down this direction toward aesthetic relativism, toward musical heresy, toward misunderstanding the telos of music, toward a consumeristic approach, toward appreciating how, how and why we use music for on Sundays or throughout the week. We've been heading down this, this road for a century or more, possibly more. Some might say since the Reformation in some senses. And, and I mean, there's, there's certain, certain areas that we could, we could look at that are going to, um, that are going to give us different results depending on what we're talking about. But I think we have to have it. We have to have the conversation of this is a generational project. It will be an investment. It will be costly. It will be frustrating. It will require energy output. I, I want to, just echo what you're saying there uh, quickly, because I, I think that it, it's so important. You know, th- there's so many, whether it's the, the, those who are donating to different organizations or trying to join different organizations. One of, the, one of the pathologies of our moment is that we see something that's wrong. And we want, like you said, we want to find a, like a key program, a key hire, one key investment. Um, and we're, we're going to turn this ship around, right? We're gonna. I'm gonna publish this book, and it's gonna fix everything. We're gonna start this school. We're gonna fix everything. Or the most, uh, you know, frustrating thing for me is when people think that, well, if we just win this election, <laughs> it's all everything's gonna be better. This is folly. We've had two hundred, at least two hundred years of this mess. You know, when, whether you know, we're talking about the the decline of of you know of, of music, the decline of philosophy, the decline of uh, political philosophy. The decline of aesthetics and art generally. Um, I, I often say that as you go through, if if an art museum is organized chronologically, um, it's like after uh, you get past 1900, it's like the artists dislike you more and more. There's just yeah. more and more contempt for the um, less edifying, right? The banana yeah. taped to the wall, mm. uh, that that kind of uh, idea. Um, I also wanted to mention too, you know, you say about forgetting the church calendar. I completely forgot. Today is the feast of Saint Matthew it in the is, West. Right, that is. Uh, if you're if for those Saint you, Matthew's Passion, I mentioned. Yeah. What, what could be more appropriate than that? Yeah, listen yeah. to that today. Google it, right? Uh, not Google it. YouTube it. I don't know. Use technology. Find it. Um, and <laughs> there's uh, actually there's a, some amazing resources for video performances of almost all of Bach's calendar by the Netherlands Bach Society, and the website is all of Bach. They've got these beautiful high def recordings, video recordings in a, a lot of astounding cathedrals throughout Europe, and their Saint Matthew's Passion is incredible. That'd be really cool. I also want to make sure I acknowledge that those of you who are Orthodox, I'm pretty sure Saint Matthew's Day is in uh, November. Um, but listen to it then. I don't know what today is in the Orthodox <laughs> calendar. Um, so speaking of these resources, I know you've done some work with uh, helping people with family singing canons. I love the idea of singing the Stations of the Cross 
that has to have been done before, right? I'm sure. I, I've never been to one, I mean, Me neither. I, 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 the first time I did Stations of the Cross was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. I, 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 I was an adult before I even knew mm-hmm. what they were. Um, and uh, singing them would be great. So what are some of the... Re- and I want to... We'll, we'll wrap up with this. What are some of the resources that you've offered to encourage this family singing so that we can have... Because we're, we're... And I didn't finish this thought earlier. One of the things we're doing at the Ciceronian Society is we're playing the long game realizing that when it comes to discipleship and turning this ship around of Western civilization, it is not going, there is no single bullet that's going to do it. You have to play a generational game. You have to plant roots that grow, that grow into trees. Well, trees grow slowly. Most of them do. You are already doing this with some of the resources you're developing for family singing. And I'd like you to tell our listeners about that. And also please conclude with telling us um, how we can learn more about the Michigan Academy of Folk Music and what you're doing. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to, to share a little. Uh, so I mentioned the idea of the musical discipleship process that happens within the home. Well, two things about that. One is it is happening within the home regardless. You know, this is so true of almost anything you talk about, but, you know, the role of a father in the home or something. Well, the father is shaping his children whether actively or passively. And the same is true of your of the musical foundation that your children are receiving in their home. So it's actually quite simple. I mean, start by singing at home with your children. Sing whatever songs you know in whatever key you want. Sing them with perfect pitch. Sing them in tone deaf, you know, raucous chaos. Do what you can, aiming to, to let your ceiling be your children's floor. And your ceiling might be a pretty modest one. You know, this might be like a shanty, you know, this may, this may not be a glorious cathedral, but I I do too, but no less, uh, start there. Now, some of the resources I've been hoping to, to create, to help families with this, especially homeschool families, but any family who has the idea and the impulse and the desire to sing and to have sort of a curricular model of growing as a family choir, taking seriously your vocation as sung worshipers of the living God. Uh, so, I have a, it's a, a YouTube channel right now, but also is a website, thesingingfamily.com. And so far, what I've started to do is a project of composing canons. Uh, and what a canon is, some people might be familiar with the terminology of a round, like Frere Jacques or something like that. Uh, you know, row, row, row your boat. It's just a melody, a composition that can be sung in a follow the leader type form. So you sing it in multiple groups, you learn the melody, one group starts, another group follows. And so the melody itself is not polyphonic. There aren't multiple parts. There's just one melody. There aren't ranges. It's not suitable for sopranos or tenors or basses. You don't have to have anything like that within your house. But the composition itself, when sung as a canon, does the hard work for you of creating polyphony and, you know, rhythmic independence. So it's a really amazing way to learn to sing independently. And so a couple, the kind of two new projects that I'm working on right now, and then I'll give you my forecast for what my next steps are in case this might be edifying for your families. One is canon settings of scripture. So I've just been taking settings of scripture and putting them in two, three, or four part canons and then setting them to the church calendar. So for example, I have one canon for every week of the church calendar and then an additional canon for every additional feast day or holy day within the church calendar. So coming up, I'm going to be doing a singing school here in Holland where we'll do every week of Advent, we'll be learning one canon. And then in the 12 days of Christmas, there'll be a canon every day. 
So it's a great way to just force your family to try and possibly fail and laugh, but, you know, give, give your children a chance at trying this. For some families who already like to sing or who have older children, this is going to be great. So you could try them, uh, learn. There are teaching videos of every single canon, or there will be in the next couple months. Having said that, some of you have younger children. Some of you are not singers, and some of you might need a little bit more modest on-ramp to this type of thing. I've been also, we have a youth choir here for ages 6 to 11, and I've been com- composing Mother Goose canons along the same lines that are just little musical settings of Mother Goose rhymes that are short and sweet. Some are very easy. I have them organized on the page by difficulty level. So if you want to stick with all the ones that are labeled easy, that would be great. Um, and that's a really great way to get, again, the whole goal of polyphonic singing or singing in multiple parts is starting from the integrity of singing one part in tune and then building the independence to not be swayed by other parts doing different things. So there's, it's incredibly fruitful to sing these type of things. Having said that, there might not be much of a liturgical use for those types of compositions. I would like to think they could be used in that way, but I haven't seen them used that way yet. So the next step, I'm hoping to create videos to help people learn to sing uh, hymns in four parts, teaching each part individually and bringing them back into four part, learning psalm chanting. And there are so many different beautiful traditions of psalm chanting. I am partial to Josh and I both attend an Anglican church here. And Anglican church has an Anglican chant tradition, which is incredible. It's very similar to Gregorian chant or plain song, but it's always done in four parts generally. So it's it's really incredible. And it's actually not that hard to learn, but sadly we've forgotten it. Most, most churches have forgotten this tradition. So I'm, I'm doing that. And I'm also, I've been composing a lot of settings, musical settings of daily office prayers, both following our Anglican Book of Common Prayer and also just other simplified liturgical settings for families so that you could pray with your family morning, afternoon, and evening, bedtime, but also sing your prayers. And this is a really incredible way to work music in, to glorify God's word, to, t- to sing the text, and also to practice to become more fit uh, worshipers, sung worshipers. So yeah, again, if you'd like to know more about what it is we're doing here in Holland at Michigan Academy of Folk Music, you can do that at www.mifolkmusic.com. And the singing family stuff is available at thesingingfamily.com. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any help, especially if you have any feedback, because I really want to make this helpful to families. The goal for me is, yes, to help with congregational singing and give churches access to the rich inheritance that we have musically and artistically. But I do believe that much of that is going to have to start not only on Sundays, but on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday at home with your children and just slogging it out, letting your ceiling become your children's floor over a generational period of time. So, This is an amazing way to end. Thank you so much, Nate. This has been one of the best conversations I've had in a long time, and I'm so glad we got it on tape <laughs> um, and that you can listen to it whenever you want, and so can I. Now, you have been listening to The Sower. This is a production of the Ciceronian Society. I, you know, I think about, let me just take a break there and say it's called The Sower. You know, that it, it's named after Matthew 13, right? Mm-hmm. The, the parable of the sower and how so many, so much of, of music education and what we're doing, this formation, that's what we're doing. We're sowing seeds on good soil. You have to create the good soil. 
Um, all right. So you've been listening to the Sower production of the Ciceronian Society. And you've been, and if you've enjoyed this conversation and would like to meet more people like Nate, we hope you'll consider joining us for our 2024 conference in Plano, Texas, February 29th through March 2nd. Registration is now open on our website. And definitely take a look there. Sign up for our newsletter um, because you'll also learn about hopefully future events as well. Um, and be sure to rate and review this podcast, share it with your friends, and check out our website at ciceronianssociety.org. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Thank you for listening.